The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now in fast rate shock. Last week, the two-year topped 5%, its highest level in more than 15 years. And today, it's more than 60 basis points lower. Should investors cheer or fear this rate whipsaw? We'll ask Steve Eisman of Big Short fame to give us his take. Plus, Iger Unleashed, Disney's CEO Bob Iger telling our own David Faber everything is on the table to right-size and reorganize the company as streaming is completely disrupting the entertainment business. We'll break down Disney's next move straight ahead. And later, a pop for Pepsi, but our share is being artificially sweetened. Uh-huh. Ripple's explosive move higher, the reasons why. And Progressive just lost a bundle today. Sorry, Flo. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live from the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Lori Calvacina, RBC Capital Markets, head of U.S. Equity Strategy. Welcome, Lori. And we start off with another strong day for stocks as investors cheer yet one more cooler than expected inflation report. Producer prices growing at their slowest pace in nearly three years. The major indices all up for the fourth day in a row. Meantime, the greenback going red in a big way. The dollar dipping to its lowest level since last April. Rates also taking a massive leg lower, as we mentioned. The 10-year yield sliding to its lowest level of the month. The two-year, which was just at 5.15 last week, now trading with just over 4.6%. So what are the moves in rates in FX telling us about the markets we have right now, Guy? Well, it's the bond market as confused as I am, clearly. And I don't think the bond market knows where it should be going in terms of where the economy is at, where's demand at. PPI, to me, you can look at it as a very positive thing, a very negative thing. I mean, maybe there's going to be demand destruction on the back end. Maybe that's why we're seeing this. But in terms of the bond market, I'll let Tim talk about the dollar for sure. Again, the volatility in the bond market, to me, has been a warning sign. Now, it hasn't manifested itself in equities. I thought it would for a long time. But the fact that you've seen 15, 20 basis points moves, the yield curve going to 105 points inversion, back to 85 points over the course of a couple of weeks, that's not a normal market under any circumstances, not least of which the largest economy in the history of mankind. Yeah. Lori, what's your take? And, and of course, you know, with the 10-year yield where it is now moving lower, that's a great thing for tech stocks. We definitely saw that in the Nasdaq. Right. And it's a great thing for equity valuations as well. And, you know, we actually just updated our valuation model today. This move we've had in the 10-year and some of the shifts in the forecast have nudged that multiple assumption up just a little bit. Um, But I like to watch the move index anytime we talk about the bond market. And I think it's showing you we had a little bit of peak fear, Not, not extreme fear, but a little bit of fear percolating that's come back down and it's coming at a great time. Aaron. I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. Um, I actually bought some two uh, six-month treasuries today just at 5 and 5.43 yield, I think it was. I mean, this inversion, which we've had for quite some time, I find, I mean, you can see why with where Fed funds rates are, why the front end is where it is. But uh, I don't know what to make of it. And I would, we'll have Tim talk about the dollar, but the combination of bonds catching a bid, but the dollar, you would think if, if money would come into the U.S. by dollars, by bonds, that I guess not happening. I'm not sure. I don't know what to make of it, to be honest. Yeah. Tim? 
Well, I don't think bond markets are broken, but I, I do think that there's a lot of questions about really where the Fed is going to be out, not in the next three to six months, but really six to 12 months. And you can see that in the Fed fund futures. If you look at June 24 futures, one point uh, six or seven days ago, and you've highlighted the move in the two year, though, that future said we were unchanged out one year uh, effectively. Now that said, we're, we're, we're somewhere around 60 basis points. So um, there's 40 bips priced in out one year. Um, you know, to the dollar, I, I think you've got a dynamic where uh, between the Fed commentary and at least what we've seen from the market, and, and we do mean both inflation data, jobs data, is that the dollar trades on central bank differentials and, and, and amongst other things, but probably most notably uh, the differentials. And the expectation is here that the Fed is the least aggressive of the major central banks at this point. And I think that's probably appropriate because they certainly were uh, so much so over the last whatever. And, and I would argue you can make an argument that the dollar's been in a 13-year bull market. Um, I don't think the dollar's going straight down, but a 3.5% move down from that same point we're all targeting last week after that 80, 80 P print is as big and as sudden of a move as we've seen. It, it, the dynamics for both commodity investors, the dynamics for emerging markets, and even international investors um, is enormous. And we started to see a lot of those markets and asset classes turn on a dime or double bottom on relative performance against the S&P. So I do think the dollar uh, does not hurt you on the upside. It doesn't mean it has to go aggressively lower from here, but I think it will go lower. And I think that's part of the trade. Yeah, I mean, not only is a lower, you know, lower yields good for valuations, Lori pointed out, but a, a lower dollar, so a weaker dollar is great for earnings. And we could hear that starting in earnings season for, when they start tomorrow, basically. Talk about all the time creates tailwinds for multinationals without questions. I mean, the stronger dollar didn't seem to be that much of a, I don't know, headwind, but it clearly should be a tailwind. But in terms of what it could help, and again, this dollar move has been precipitous, but yeah. look at the move conversely, like a GDX, for example. A 10% move over the course of a week, I mean, Tim can speak to this as well. That's pretty big. You don't see it, and I think it really is going to lend itself to the commodity trade, which we've talked about for a while. Gold getting off the mat again, silver's starting to bounce, people not paying attention. And I'll tell you something, although crude oil is going slightly higher, gasoline is off to the races again. And it's pretty significantly backwardated, which, again, theoretically makes the Fed's job that much more difficult in the back half. Yeah. Tim, um, commodities start looking good now. Well, I, you know, first of all, we've, we've seen a lot of the commodity-based stocks, not just energy companies versus oil, but uh, even a free port against the price of copper. That they'd, they'd kind of started to diverge, and that was good news. But I, I do think that we've gotten some sense that there are places where there is pockets of growth. Uh, yes, the labor market's decelerating, but but uh, the other big acronym that we seem to be throwing out there for equity investors, if there was TINA, which is there is no alternative, there's RINO, which is recession in name only. And if it's recession in name only, uh, then and the dollar is falling and the central bank's on pause, it's very good for commodities. Now, I'm not saying you run out uh, and buy them, but as someone that's been trading in and out of Freeport and Rio Tinto, and BHP Billiton, um, I think this is a pretty decent backdrop to, to own them. You updated your model today, Laurie, as you said. And so what, what did your model spit out as the sectors to be in now? Did anything fundamentally change? So we've liked energy for a while. Mm -hmm. We've been patient with it. Um, we've said we thought the style trade would chop around a little bit. But look, energy's cheap. It's got compelling dividend yields, nice buybacks, nice balance sheets. And now you're getting a lift to oil prices. So that should help earnings in here. So we think it's, and, you know, frankly, we've seen curiosity here for a while. That's translating into real interest over the last week on our desk. Does your view of the economy change? No. <laughs> Anything? The market's done. The market's CPI, done. PPI, job. The market's done really well. Going. No, look, the job market is strong without question. 
I mean, the economy is slowing. I mean, think about the decisions they're making in Europe. I mean, their economy is a disaster, but inflation is even worse. I, again, I'm interested to see what Steve says. I'm teasing something, as you probably can see what I'm doing. But I will tell you, I've been wrong on the lag effect of the Fed, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think it's going to be pretty interesting over the next few months. All right, let's get to Steve Eisman. He is known, of course, for predicting the 08 housing market crash. And now, big short investor Steve Eisman is questioning the market's rally stamina just as earnings season is about to get started. He joins us now. Steve is now the senior portfolio manager at Newberger Berman. Steve, it's always good to see you. Thank you for having me. What do you make of the markets? We're sort of all you know, scratching your heads a little bit, the volatility in the bond market, the rally we've seen in tech? Um, I think everybody, including me, has underestimated how much institutional investors were underinvested at the beginning of the year. Everybody was, as one of my partners likes to say, this is, one, this is the most anticipated recession that so far has never happened. And so people are chasing. It's starting to feel a little manic, but could go on long, quite a bit longer because as long as the economic data is okay, I don't see why people are going to sell their stocks. It's funny when an institutional investor says that, in, that the thing that you got wrong was underestimating how much institutional investors have invested <laughs> in the market. Were you also underinvest? I mean, were you sort of bracing for something really terrible to happen? And do you still believe that it will happen? Or are you saying, you know, things actually look much better? Well, I think we came in to the year fully invested. You know, we did better last year than the market because we were somewhat defensive. We're not quite as defensive as we were. But uh, like, I would admit that I'm surprised about how much the market has gone up this year. I really am. Are there shorts in the tech sector then, if things look manic? I don't talk about individual stocks, <laughs> but thanks for asking. <laughs> well, in the sector itself. Um, I think it's too hard. Bubble. It's too hard. I mean, even stocks where I think the, the companies are not even going to last, the, you know, the correlations between all these companies that have very high revenue growth and negative earnings is almost one. So it's not really stock picking. It's like group picking. You know, last year, those stocks were all down 75 to 90 percent. This year, they're up like 40 to 50 percent. But, you know, when you go from 160 to 10 and now you're 14, mm -hmm. looks good on a percentage basis, but it's not so good if you've owned it long term. Yeah. So what kind of economy are you investing in? What's the backdrop to your investment when it comes to, you know, what you expect the uh, economy to give you? Is it a recession? Is it a soft landing? And, I mean, at this point, I'm, I'm agnostic about it. I mean, the data is still very, very strong. The Fed keeps raising rates. It hasn't had an impact. You know, until it has an impact, I'll just say we'll keep chugging along. So what are you chugging along with? In, uh, in I mean, it's a combination of some tech, very little financials, mm -hmm. um, a lot of it. We're focusing on doing a lot of work on infrastructure because the amount of money that the government is pouring into it is almost unimaginable, and it's going to last for at least 10 years. Tomorrow kicks off bank earnings. We're not going to play individual names, but banks are interesting here. And No, they're I'm, not. Well, that's, not my, that's my point. So the regulation is coming. Capital requirements are going higher. The environment suggests they're not going to be, the earnings are not going to be nearly as robust as the valuations suggest. So I'm not saying short, long, but are banks important here? Because I don't think they're particularly interesting either. I don't think they're interesting, and I don't think they're important. I mean, people own J.P. Morgan because they're hiding in it. It's by far the best bank. Uh, I, the regionals are problematic because they keep losing their deposits and have to keep reducing their balance sheet. So I, for the regionals, I don't think earnings have bottomed. Um, and I wouldn't even think about buying them until I thought that they had. You know, you could 
traffic a little bit in the larger banks. But the problem is that uh, Michael Barr, who's vice chair of financial supervision, just said that he's going to raise capital requirements for the large banks by 20 percent, which would take ROEs down by 100 to 200 basis points. There's an irony in this, by the way. All the problems that happened in the banks were in the mid-cap banks. The large banks, because of all the regulatory changes, were fine. So what do the regulators do? They go fight the last war, and they're raising capital requirements of the large banks. Uh, why? I mean, th there's absolutely no reason for it, but that's what they're doing. So if you look at something though, like a JP Morgan trading at 10 times, uh, 10 times earnings, I mean, to me, it seems like it's discounting a lot of things like additional capital requirements and, you know, some maybe some other bank problem down the road and maybe the economy not doing so well. So it seems to me I actually think it's attractive here. It is attractive, but it may be the only stock in the entire group that's attractive. I mean, if I had to pick one stock where I would say the earnings estimates could probably go up, it would be J.P. Morgan. But I think every other bank probably in the country, the estimates are going to go down. So, you know, it's hard to play a group where nobody wants to own it, but you want to own the best stock. You know, I wouldn't argue with anyone who wants to own J.P. Morgan, but I just think the, the entire group is problematic right now. I think the last time you were on this show was shortly after the bank crisis. Um, and so I'm wondering now, with a little bit of hindsight and a little bit of perspective, do you see the impacts of that crisis in March still playing out? Do you think it's, it's yet to come? And do you think another one is on its way? I mean, the only thing we know for sure is that most of the banks have tightened their underwriting standards, so loan volume is down. It hasn't had an impact on the economy yet, maybe because there's so many other places to get a loan than it used to be in the past. Um, I just don't see any impact at this point. So you said your focus is on infrastructure. Correct. And is that like industrials and aggregates? And it's, all, it's, all, it's, 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 it's industrials, it's aggregates, it's some greenification. It's some uh, uh, grid improvement. I mean, I'll just give you one statistic that's mind-blowing. Um, when the bill was passed, you know, part of the bill in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, which, by the way, has absolutely nothing to do with inflation, mm -hmm. um, the biggest part of it was an energy tax credit, which was estimated to be $270 billion. Now, that's an open-ended system where anybody basically can show up, and if they fulfill the requirements, they can get a tax credit. The, C the Congressional Budget Office estimated that that would be $270 billion. The estimate today is close to $500 billion. That's in four months. So, like I said, the amount of money that's being thrown at it is, I mean, you could use whatever adjective you want, but it's a lot of money. So, wondering how you think about valuations for the infrastructure-related names. Do they just not matter anymore because of all well, the... Well, it depends on the name. You know, some names have had their multiples double in the last couple of years. Some names which are a little bit off the radar are still selling at the low double digits. You know, I think there's a whole group of stocks which we're doing research on that could have a real revaluation. You know, the money hasn't hit yet. So whatever revenue growth you're going to see accelerate is probably not going to hit till next year. So you have your time to do some work. Is there any stall in greenification because of interest rates um, moving higher, because commodity costs are higher, because metals may be harder to come by? Well, I think there's a stall in terms of installation of solar panels because people finance it. Um, you know, the multiples in that group have been cut in half. It's really quite astonishing. Um, so maybe it's time to start to circle as, as things sort of level out. But there's other things in greenification other than just solar panels. What's your number one sort of subsector within the greenification theme? That's a good question. Um, 
combination of grid improvement and industrials that are very focused on this. I mean, you, part of the theme here is that we were already beginning to onshore because of how bad the supply chain was. Now you've got, I don't know, 300 billion being thrown at it, so it's like an accelerant. Steve, we gotta let you go. We hope you come back. Thank you. Steve Eisman. Tim Seymour, there's a lot to trade there. There is, uh, and, and industrials have been part of our conversation for a couple of weeks. We, we've talked about the relative outperformance to the S&P of the transports and the industrials. Um, when you think about the greenification, you also, it takes me back to the energy sector, ironically, because these companies have not invested in, in infrastructure and CapEx has, has been pulled back. So uh, again, it's supportive of a lot of these energy companies who are growing their payout ratios. Uh, uranium, uh, very much uh, in part of this trade. And again, building out infrastructure, and there's only a handful of folks really well positioned for this at this point. So um, I, I continue to think that the dynamics that he's talking about, first of all, less concerned about banks, uh, more focused on companies that could possibly re-rate and are going to be, be beneficiaries of margin accretion, um, are exactly what, what the market has been giving you over the last three weeks to a month. So um, on a day when the queues and the semis um, went back to a leadership position, uh, I think they're going to struggle there. And at some point, that means the market struggles. Um, the amount of money in terms of tax credits, that's just wild, <laughs> what Steve was saying. Yeah, and I, I think he hit on something important, a re-rating in the sector because of these tremendous growth drivers that are out there. I will say, I think his view, even though everyone's sort of talking about this theme, is somewhat contrarian because I talk to a lot of institutional PMs who say, no, I can't touch it because it's too expensive. Uh. I know, but if we're this early on, maybe it isn't. I money hasn't hit. It has, money hasn't yeah. hit. Although the first thing when he said that number is so big, like, oh, that's kind of a deficit busting. More, you know, yeah. that's going to be trouble down the road. But I mean, I hadn't looked at a name like Vulcan Materials until just now. That's had a huge run, and they make agri like gravel, and you yeah. know. So, but if it's this early on, I, you know, I'm very happy sticking with a name like United Rentals. What was my, what do they call those acronym things? Acronyms. No. They call them acronyms. <laughs> yes. It's, honest, yes. it's so odd, right? But my, what was mine? You know, I mean, you always talk about Tim's. Mojo. Yes, this year it was Mojo. Two O's, <laughs> again, interchangeable. But the J in Mojo was Johnson Controls. controls. <laughs> and it's interesting because when Steve's talking, I'm thinking, you know what, JCI sort of falls under that category in a tangential way. So I'm on the Steve Eisman camp with this one for sure. All right, coming up, a soda surge. Shares of Pepsi popping after reporting results this morning. What the company had to say about pricing and demand next. Plus, a huge move in crypto. Ripple surging after notching a landmark win in its case against the SEC. How this decision could ripple through the rest of the crypto landscape when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. PepsiCo out with results before the bell today. The beverage giant beating on the top and the bottom lines, also raising its full-year earnings outlook by 20 cents a share. The company does see lower volumes as higher food and beverage costs curb demand for its products. Still the stock gaining more than 2% today. It was snacks. People love snacks. It's the affordable luxury. <laughs> That's what the CFO said. I know. So they're not going to deprive themselves of a bag of Doritos, even if it costs 7 dollars a bag. The affordable, I was kind of surprised at that, but they, you know, they talked about organic growth. Uh, that was, you know, part of the reason people like that. But they also said that they raised prices uh, 15% and their commodity costs were up 15%, which makes it sound like that's why they raised the prices 15%. However, commodity costs aren't all of their costs. Right. So the rest or some of the rest is just profit. I mean, good for them, but at this price, uh, you know, I don't know, 25 times, it's not so crazy, but uh, it's, it's not for me here. One other thing, though, this is a multinational. Almost half their business, I think, is outside of the United States. So this dollar move could be beneficial to them. Yeah. Uh, Tim, we did see volumes let up a bit. So maybe consumers are starting to think twice. How many bags are you going to buy? Mm-hmm. You know, maybe buy one and not two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Frito breath is not something anybody wants. But um, I do think you have a dynamic with Pepsi where, first of all, this is one of the great five-year charts uh, anywhere. Um, they under-promise and over-deliver perpetually. So when they raise guidance here, I believe them. And, and in fact, it's kind of when we've talked about other companies that they didn't need to say this, so things might even be a little bit better. I don't like the volume contraction. I don't think that they have the ability to raise prices. Hugh Johnston said on, on the network this morning that he doesn't think the commodity, first of all, he thinks inflation is not necessarily going down as fast as people might want to believe and that their commodity basket won't go negative. Let's, you know, let's see about that. I, I think they've had a unique window over the last two and a half years to raise prices in a way that they will not be able to, and I'll say it, get away with it anymore. Um, and I, I just, I, you know, the valuation doesn't scare me. Uh, this is the kind of a stock that I think you could be short. I certainly would ponder this. Um, because I think the valuation's not cheap, and, and I think they priced in extraordinary dynamics, and they had volume uh, volumes that were falling. Um, and I don't think they can raise prices like they have. I would agree with Tim. I mean, I can't speak about an individual company, but on this whole pricing theme in general, one of the things we see at S&P level is that when inflation moderates, revenues come down, and it doesn't necessarily flow through to margins. So I think we're getting to the end of this period in the market when everyone can just say, hey, we're passing it on, we're passing it on. You are starting to see some erosion in certain companies. So I feel like, you know, I'm in the skeptical camp here. We're hearing about trade down constantly. We yeah. heard it from Amazon. We heard Dollar General is saying its customers trading down to food stamps. Remember that? Yeah. 
and that speaks to, you know, probably 15, 18 percent of the population. I mean, that's a, a terrible thing to think about, if you, but that's what's happening. So who wins to that? And listen, Pepsi's been a great stock. I think the all-time high was last week, not that it matters, 196 or so. Karen's right. At 25 times, it's probably a little long in the tooth. But at a certain point, to Lori's point, margins just start to contract. So as inflation comes down, as much as you think it's a positive, for some of these companies, it will wind up being pretty significant negative. All right. There's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Ripple rips higher. The crypto at 18-month highs. The big win it scored against regulators and what it could mean for the broader space. Plus, Iger's intentions. Disney could look a whole lot different pretty soon. What the CEO had to say about the future of TV, streaming, and more. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. Welcome back to Fast Money. Ripple ripping higher today after a New York judge handed the cryptocurrency a major win in an ongoing legal battle with the SEC. The coin hitting its highest level since December 2021. Other coins coming along for the ride. Kate Rooney's got the very latest. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So the court's decision today could have implications for the future of the crypto industry. To set the stage a bit here, the cryptocurrency XRP that you mentioned was created by a major company in this space called Ripple. The SEC had sued Ripple few years ago on grounds that it sold an unregistered security. Today, a U.S. district judge ruled that, yes, sales of the cryptocurrency to sophisticated investors, so hedge funds or VCs, were an illegal unregistered securities offering. But this is key. Sales to regular investors on an exchange did not violate the law. And that has been core and at the core of the SEC's recent lawsuit against Coinbase. SEC Chair Gary Gensler has argued that most crypto tokens, aside from Bitcoin, are securities because buyers have the expectation of profit. It used that reasoning in suing Coinbase and Binance, arguing that they broke the law by listing certain tokens. Both of those companies are fighting in court, and they argue that the SEC is overreaching here. So if other courts follow in the wake of today's decision declaring the cryptocurrencies are not securities, it could undercut the SEC's case. Wedbush just raising its price target on Coinbase to 110 bucks from 75 as a result here, saying we believe today's ruling on the Ripple versus SEC case is a likely positive for its uh, Coinbase's case versus the SEC. Coinbase also just saying that its plans to uh, relist XRP, you can see it having an effect there, XRP, the token, up about 67 percent. Coinbase is also getting a boost here as well. Back to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney. And this has been the question hanging over this whole space for a very long time, Tim. It looks like it could be resolved. Um, do you like the trade on Coinbase better now? Well, I, the, you saw Coinbase up you know, 1.7% in the after hours. It was up 25% today. Yeah. It's up 130% um, since the SEC low. 
Um, it's up 200% year to date. And, and so uh, clearly also some of this is really, I think, just winning back the relative performance to the underlying to Bitcoin. The correlations there are what they are. If you look on a one year basis now, uh, Coinbase is caught up. You remove this overhang. Uh, there's a lot of questions about uh, how unique Coinbase's platform is in a world where commoditization uh, would probably be bad for them. But uh, I, you know, I'm long Coinbase. I, 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 some of this is really just based on they are uh, largest player in a space that was so bombed out that that was interesting to me. The, the, the SEC dynamics are obviously the linchpin, and today's a big day where there's implications for more big days. Yeah, uh, this whole move in this space has been the BlackRock rally. I mean, ever since it filed its uh, application for an ETF, mm-hmm. Bitcoin ETF, I mean, right? there it goes. Everything shot Well, higher. GBTC, which we right. talk about a lot, is that funky structure, um, which had been as low as a, about a 44% discount to the underlying. That discount is now down to 21%, which sounds like a lot still. But, um, I mean... This bodes well for them. If they can unravel this structure and just have it trade anywhere close, you don't even need the underlying Bitcoin to move. Just make that 20%. The interesting question, though, is if the SEC doesn't have jurisdiction any longer, if this decision holds up and it has no jurisdiction over these exchanges, then who protects the investor? It becomes the Wild West again, to a certain extent. Well, I mean... you know, I don't know, could be good for the industry. Maybe that welcomes in, you know, legislation to finally actually be passed. There's a runway for it being good, for sure. And I th- listen, for a certain extent, I mean, Tim's been spot on with Coinbase. Robinhood, not a similar move, but Robinhood's probably up 62.5%, since, I want to say, the June, middle of June lows in eight and change. So that continues to perform. They report earnings, I think, at the beginning of August. The stock is right up against levels we saw in November of last year, so this might be resistance, but there's some runway for this stock as well to the upside. Coming up, is Disney ready for an extreme makeover? What CEO Bob Iger told her David Faber during their one-on-one interview, the impact on the stock and the industry next. Plus, UNH feeling out of sorts this year, but can tomorrow's earnings release be the right medicine? The options action on this Dow component is straight ahead. Fast Money, be right back. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks, closing higher after this morning's PPI data. The major average is now riding a four-day winning streak. The Nasdaq on pace for its best week since March. Shares of Alphabet jumping nearly 5% after Morgan Stanley raised its price target for the stock 100 to 150. From 140, analysts there are citing the company's potential to disrupt search with AI. On the other hand, Progressive sinking after reporting an earnings miss this morning. Shares dropping more than 13%. That's its worst day since 2000. Guy, you flagged this one. Yeah, you have to because you wonder, think about what's been going on in the country worldwide. I mean, India's having record floods. You think of what's happened in the Northeast here, heat like we haven't seen in the West. I mean, at a certain point, these insurers are going to be in trouble. And I think you're starting to see it now. So as much as you think they're cash cows, every other commercial on TV is seemingly for an insurance company. They're in a bit of, they're in some difficulties here. So these moves are probably justified. There's probably more to come to the downside. We've seen insurers pull out of certain markets yeah. in California. State Florida, Farm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yep. So uh, they see these losses on the wall. Turning now to Disney, shares ending the day slightly in the green. This after David Faber's wide-ranging interview with CEO Bob Iger. Iger incredibly candid about the extreme challenges facing the legacy part of Disney's TV business, ABC, and a host of their cable networks. 
But they may not be core to Disney, yeah. Now there's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to, we, and, and we have to call it like it is. And Iger also spoke at length about bringing a strategic partner to ESPN as they move toward being a direct-to-consumer brand. We have a great brand, we've had a great business, and we want to stay in that business. That said, we're going to be open-minded there too, not necessarily about spinning ESPN off, but about looking for strategic partners that could either help us with distribution or content, but we want to stay in the sports business. There was a lot in there that made you think that he has really stepped back, evaluated uh, the situation, and things may have been worse than he had anticipated when he first went into the job. That's why he is staying longer. And Karen, you're mm -hmm. making the point before that it sounds like he's kitchen sinking. Here. It is. It's yeah. like when the new CEO comes in and kitchen right. sinks it, but he was kind of, not the exact CEO, but very shortly before that. But good for him. I mean, he's telling it like it is. You, he's very clearly setting this up to be a terrible quarter, which I think the stock actually hung in there pretty well with what seemed like, to me, clear messaging. And uh, everything's on the table. That was unthinkable a while ago. But to hear him basically say ABC doesn't fit. Yeah, that and, and you know, traditional TV, linear yep, yep. TV, whatever you want to call it, is broken. That model is broken, Tim. Tim, do you feel better as a shareholder now? Or do you feel like the Disney picture is a little bit more cloudy? I, I mean, I... I don't think we learned anything new here. Um, the stock believe, the stock trades like a kitchen sink. The stock's at five-year lows. The stock's done nothing. The, the, the S&P's at 4,500 and Disney's done nothing. Um, and, and so, you know, I look at how we're valuating the different pieces of the business and we're right to value them differently. And you can make an argument that the core uh, parks business on their domestic and international execution is, is, is really all you're paying for right now. And so, uh, look, I, I think the idea of an ESPN spinoff as a catalyst to Disney stock is something that maybe is a negative coming out of this. But but there is a lot of intrinsic value in that brand. Would they have a strategic part? We know Amazon, Apple um, and, and, and Google through YouTube are, are drooling all over major sports and they are there and they're going to have a lot of money to throw at it. So maybe they are the right strategic partner. Uh, but again, I don't. There's nothing about the news over the last 24 hours other than a more sober look at the business that we haven't heard from this company. But the market has priced in sobriety a long time ago. For more on Disney, let's bring in Newsweek editor-at-large Tom Rogers. He was also the former TiVo CEO and the first NBC cable president. Tom, it is always good to see you. Thanks for having me. Um, please read between the lines and tell us what you think is on page number one of the Bob Iger playbook at this point. Well, first, it, to solve a problem, you got to admit you have one. And uh, uh, I've been saying for a long time here, in fact, that uh, uh, don't get carried away with uh, Disney's streaming prospects. The big issue to keep your eye on is decline of the legacy business. And that could swamp any growth they get out of streaming. And I did take away from this the fact that uh, they are putting decline of the legacy business center stage now, owning up to it in a bigger way, recognizing the problems here are truly severe. And I think uh, uh, with that, uh, the s solutions are, are possible, but he couldn't hand this off to a new CEO right now, or there wouldn't have been any point in him coming in, uh, coming back. Uh, there's just too many things here that are a problem to hand this off to a new CEO at this point.
Tom, it's one thing to have streaming problems, but their legacy businesses have been extraordinarily challenged. And to your point, I mean, given what's there right now, there's no way he's leaving within the next few years. I mean, he's probably going to be in this job a lot longer than he thought. So this is not going to be a quick fix, I don't think, at Disney, especially when you look at their traditional businesses. Right. Well, when you think of the list of problems, uh, movies aren't working, cord cutting's accelerating, sub fees are, from cable are going negative, advertising is going negative, uh, viewership is declining, they got a very cloudy buyout process with Hulu, uh, Disney World was actually down last corner, you got runaway sports rights, and that's just on the legacy side. That's before you go to streaming, and two and a half billion dollars of estimated losses on the streaming side this year, compared to what look like uh, nine billion of positive of EBITDA coming out of Netflix. Their uh, revenue per sub with Disney Plus was down in all regions last quarter as well with uh, Hulu. Uh, Disney subs declined for the first time last quarter. They're trying to grow while cutting costs and uh, they're trying to raise price with less programming. And you put all that together, there's a lot here you got to solve. And there are two deals that are not going to be easy to do that are part of the solution, certainly not all the solution. Uh, owning all of Hulu, which I think Comcast is going to dangle over their heads and uh, torture them for a while with that because it's critical to Disney being able to put together a cohesive bundle and an ESPN deal of some kind with a strategic, which has uh, uh, got a lot of complication to it as well because separating ESPN and ABC is no de- easy trick. So I just stopped the stopwatch, uh, Tom. You went on for like two, two and a half, three minutes easy, just with a list of the things that ailed Disney. Tim was just saying everything is in the stock. What's your take on, on what is priced in, what investors have accepted, um, and whether or not you think Bob Iger can actually tackle all those things on that list in some meaningful way to the stock? Well, he certainly can't tackle in the next year and a half, so I'm not surprised at all that they put this out for, uh, you know, three and a half years. Uh, uh, Certainly, uh, they're going to have to come to terms with this because uh, the media world is going to change drastically in the next uh, three and a half years, and Disney has to be in a position to be able to uh, grow with it. I do want to point out, they have created, in a very short period of time, as he said, a $20 billion revenue run rate business in streaming only second to netflix which is about 32 billion or so run rate revenue in streaming so it's not as if they've got nothing they got a lot but against that backdrop they got to solve these problems it's going to take more than a year and a half to solve them Iger's the right guy given how well he knows his business uh but uh nobody should think that this is going to be a fast turnaround because it just isn't Thomas Kieran, thanks for being on. Speaking of having a lot, they also have a lot of debt. Are you concerned at all about that, hamstringing their ability to do what they need to to restructure the business? Uh, well, it's uh, uh, certainly an issue for them. I wouldn't put it uh, on one of the top issue lists. They don't have the kind of uh, leverage issues, say, that a, a Warner Brothers Discovery has. Um, I think uh, coming the other way on Hulu, and Moffat Nathanson pointed this out recently, one of the reasons that I think this Hulu discussion is going to go on for a while, unless by some chance there's white smoke coming out of Sun Valley in the next couple of days, is that uh, Comcast 
has a loan against uh, Hulu. Uh, plus, they have tax on uh, the basis of Hulu. So they don't get a whole lot of cash coming back to them for a Hulu sale. As a result, for them to drag this out and make it difficult for a competitor to be able to take the key step in streaming they need to take with integrating Hulu and and uh, Disney Plus and, and maybe ESPN Plus along with it because their bundle churn is well below their, their single streaming service churn. Um, I think that uh, uh, they're going to end up uh, probably having to pay more than the minimum price, and uh, that is certainly going to exacerbate their debt issue. Tom, it's always good to see you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tom Rogers. Okay, what are you going to say, Guy? Well, what do I... Yeah, okay. Does Tom look any different to you stud. by any chance? Does, does he look different? He does, no. right? He does being different? Well, he's a in stud. But he also looks better because his daughter, Jessica, had a baby boy. Wesley, oh, isn't that amazing? Yes. Nice. So congratulations to the whole, the whole Rogers family. Yes. See, I told... Look at him. Yeah. He's beaming. Yeah. I was right. Yes. An, another Disney viewer. They are a Disney <laughs> household. They grow nice. one subscriber at a time. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Tom, congrats. All right, guys, hey. your train. Well, he's been right on both Netflix and Disney. And, you know, I think it might be all in the stock. I don't know. It, 82 seems to have a bullseye on it. But Netflix at 450 seemingly has some runway in earnings, I think, on July 19th. So the valuation has almost doubled since in this move. But at 30 times, historically, it's not even that ridiculous. So I think Netflix is still the place to be. Do not miss David Faber's exclusive interview with Disney CEO Bob Iger. It will air again if you missed it. It will air again tonight, 8 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Coming up, United Health on deck to report earnings tomorrow morning when options traders betting shares will be under the weather with those results. We'll bring you the trade next. Back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The earnings season rolls on tomorrow when United Health reports before the bell. The insurance uh, giant struggling so far this year, down 15%. Options traders are betting this report will not stop the bleeding. Mike's got the action. Mike? Yeah, United Health traded 2.6 times its average daily options volume. That made it the busiest name in healthcare. Right now, the options market's implying a move of about 3.5% or so by the end of the day tomorrow. And it seems some traders believe that that move is going to be to the downside. The most active contract were the weekly 440 puts. Those expire tomorrow as well, over 5,000 trading for about $3.65 a contract. So it does seem that uh, the sentiment is somewhat bearish going into earnings. Lori, how do you feel about health insurers, the sector in general? So our analyst is neutral on them from a fundamental perspective. I mean, I'll say at the broader healthcare sector level, I think it's worth looking through some of these names that haven't done well. The sector as a whole has lagged. I'm sensing more interest in laggards talking to PMs over the last few weeks. Um, and I feel like this is a market that wants to rotate a bit. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm probably more in the interested camp. And Carter Braxton Worth once called this chart godlike. Great card, Braxton. Yes. Well, things change. Yeah, they certainly did. <laughs> I mean, I, I was pretty good looking <laughs> once, and so I'm not, not nowhere near that anymore. <laughs> things things happen. I think Lori hit the nail on the head. I think it's a rotation thing now. Valuation is not a concern. I think it's a rotation. People are looking for more beta, and they're going to find it in other names. UNH is a great company. I wouldn't run too far. This level actually has been huge support over the last six or seven months, but. If Mike's right about the puts, you know, it's probably got another $15 or so on the downside. Yeah, it should be interesting, too, to hear what they say about weight loss drugs. Yes. And whether or not they right. would actually. Right. And is it, well, um, at the sort of beginning of it, it seems like a huge spend, right? And then we'll see on the other side, maybe, is it a net benefit? 
exactly. All right, Mike Coe, thank you. For more Options Action, tune into the full show tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And straight ahead, they are back. Big banks getting ready to report. Should you bank on the financials here? We'll bring you the trades next. Welcome back to Fast Money. A week of bank earnings kicks off tomorrow with J.P. Morgan Chase, Citi, and Wells Fargo up first. The uh, en route reports coming as the dust settles from the banking crisis this spring and as we await the Fed's next move on interest rates. You just sold J.P. Morgan calls? I sold some upside calls against that. The only thing I don't like going into this earnings print is that it's up like, you know, 10 bucks in the last two weeks. Normally, I like it to trade down and they'll do a little better. I think the earnings will be good. We'll get some sense of the First Republic deal, how good that is for them. I think it was a great deal for them. Um, so, uh, And we're starting to see some green shoots in underwriting and banking and capital markets. So I'm happy to be long. J.P. Morgan, go Jamie. Laura, do you like financials? Uh, we actually upgraded them this week. And I think last time I was on the show, I was still pretty skeptical. But we feel like... There's a bigger issue here, which is this market, the, the tech trade, the growth trade. And don't get me wrong, I still like my tech stocks, but I feel like this market, at least in the short term, wants to rotate a bit. We're seeing growth stall out. And I feel like everyone's been so negative on financials heading into this earnings season, especially on the regionals. I keep hearing things like, well, we need to reset the quarter. Let's just wait a little bit. When that happens, you usually see those trades pulled forward a little bit. So yeah. we're, we're, we're buying them. It was interesting to hear Steve Eisman say exactly. that things, uh, yeah. you know, the yeah. fallout from the bank raise, that's done. We've seen it all. But he also suggested he wouldn't be buying regional banks here, right? He right. said he'd be waiting on that. So it's interesting. I mean, KRE's gone from 34 to 44, not in a straight line, but a decent move. And that's all in the absence of bad news. These stocks are going to levitate. And to a certain extent, that's why the Russell's done as well as it has as well. I'm one of these people that thinks there's more bad news coming. If you think that all is clear sign, then the regional banks are extraordinarily cheap here. Tim? Well, listen to Steve Eisman. I mean, ultimately, when he says nothing to see here um, from with his background, it, it makes me want to buy banks. And, and again, I would not challenge him in any way because that's his forte. What I'm saying is uh, he doesn't see systemic weakness to, that are going to take the banks down. Therefore, that valuation bar, which is so low going into these numbers, is your friend. Interest rates that at least uh, have normalized from SVB. I realize they've moved lower. We've talked about that. But you know, it's really about where the bank's net interest income at J.P. Morgan is probably going to surprise people to the upside. Um, I think capital markets for Bank of America, which has probably been the worst performer of all of them, is going to surprise people. And I think there's room for these things to move to trade higher. Uh, that's it. All right. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade, Tim Seymour. Big integrated miners like Rio Tinto are exposed to a lower dollar and commodity prices, but also China, and I think we've priced in a lot of bad news there, Rio Tinto. Lori Calvacina. Uh, we're buying the financials and we like the banks. Um, it may just end up being a trade. We may not want to be there in five years, but we think it's really interesting right now. Aaron Feinerman. Yes, I like, we were talking about this ticker, EWW, which is kind of not a great ticker, but it is the Mexico ETF. I do like the onshoring, fits in with the infrastructure as well, EWW. Guy. How is it possible that Tom Rogers is old enough to be a grandpa? It's, it's ridiculous. I mean, he looks like, you know, a young man. Younger than you. GDX, Melissa Lee. <laughs> Gold miners work here. And thank you, Lori, for joining us. Thank you for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. 
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.